You're listening to Connecting the Universe from Mike Ricksecker and ConnectedUniversePortal.com. everybody to connecting the universe author and researcher mike ricksecker this is our year end interactive class i know that uh, some those some of you that are out there that are watching on the public side like youtube or uh facebook because i'm i decided to simulcast this one um we're like this is a show right well yeah but we call it an interactive class because we we do a lot of learning during these things, and I do keep the forum open for everybody to throw their questions down in there. We usually have a usually have a class question at the outset, which we do not today. But I do want to throw out there for those that are members of the Connected Universe Portal, um, what topics do you want to cover in 2023? So, see some people are starting to fill out in the chat there. Jill Nimchinsky on the YouTube side which is uh, great to see the YouTube live participants because that used to be back in the edge of the rabbit hole days. So what we're doing tonight, because this is our year end, so I put out there, you know, just grab your favorite holiday drink, pull up a chair. We're going to go over a lot of the different topics that, uh, that we covered throughout the year. I have a lot of clips from uh, not every class that we did, but a lot of them. I think I have like 15 or 16 different clips. And um, yeah, I see a lot of people filling filling in. So there's Jill, there's there's Jen, of course. Uh, fantastic. And she's on the Facebook side. Interesting. Huh. Um, there's Nicole Nimoy. There's Tom McNicholas. There's uh, Judy Wilson on the YouTube side eggnog is ready jen grabbed her eggnog which is great i uh i grabbed my wine uh let's see we have tina so a lot of people have joined this evening fantastic okay so like i said we're going to be rolling through a bunch of different clips from a lot of our uh different classes i even have part of the watch party <laughs> from ancient aliens uh, which was a that was an exclusive members only for Connected Universe Portal. So and uh, uh, yeah, I do drink a little wine. Actually, the wine that I am drinking is the Pinot Noir that I made last year. So it is finally uh, it is aged enough for me to drink, and therefore I am partaking. All right. So where we started the year last year right off the bat, out of the gate, was the Alaska Triangle, which we covered several times throughout the year. Of course, you know, stemming from the Alaska Triangle television show, 
season two aired the year beforehand. People had a lot of questions. We've done a lot more with that. Uh, on Well, we covered it a bit on The Unexplained with William Shatner this past November. Uh, I will say it's going to be on other television shows. So I cannot exactly say which just yet. So we'll go ahead and start with our first clip. This is on uh, the, again, the Alaska Triangle. This is talking about the pole shifts. And by all means, you guys, you know, have comments, questions, whatever, throw them down there in the chat. Um, I will partake uh, during the clips on one of the chats. I'll, I'll figure that out. I was kind of like really just to get everything done kind of last minute. And, oh, I know Victoria Monday, I had to throw this out there real quick. I know Victoria Monday put out there, uh, uh, I think it was on Facebook, where she said, you know, is it's 2022 going into 2023. You know, it's ending. I thought, you know, it was still 2020. So, yeah, the year went by quick, and there's a reason for that. Not just 2022 in particular, just ourselves as we get older. You know, people say, yeah, the years are going by much quicker than they did beforehand. That's because as you get older, a year is a smaller percentage of your life. So like when you're 10 years old, a year was an entire 10% of your life. When you get to be uh, 50, I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> Getting there, not quite there yet. Um, a year is a whole 2% of your life. So that's why it seems quicker because a year is a much smaller part of your life. So all right, here we go. Alaska Triangle. Pole shift. Our magnetic north currently is moving. Yeah, it moves about 25 to 50 uh, kilometers per year, uh, thereabouts. Uh, it's kind of moving toward the northwest. So it's been in Canada for a long time, starting to move out of Canada toward the northwest, basically past Alaska and headed toward Siberia is, is where it is, it is appearing to go. Uh, so this here, this is from uh, the scientific journal Nature, where you can kind of see the path and how they've been tracking it for the last, you know, 120 years. They've got this up to 2015 and estimate for 2020. Uh, it'd be nice if they updated that. Uh, but it has been, uh, you know, moving in yeah, not a straight line. It kind of bounces around. And they even have data from the 1700s, so not in this particular graphic, uh, but you know, how reliable, I don't know, but they have data there from the 1700s that shows it in other places uh, within Canada. So the magnetic pole flip. Now that's the, uh, that's the pole moving, but there are points in time where it does a shift. So, all right, let's talk about this a little bit because it is important. Uh, the last time it happened was about 42,000 years ago. And they have an interesting quote that I include in Alaska's Mysterious Triangle, the book, uh, from evolutionary biologist Alan Cooper. He works for the Blue Sky Genetics in South Australian Museum. And he says, even though it was short, the North Pole did wander across America, right out towards New York, actually, and then back again to Oregon, then zoomed down through the Pacific really fast to Antarctica and hung out there for about 400 years, and then shot back up through the Indian Ocean to the North Pole again. All right, that's the pole shift. And what's interesting about that, and oh, oh, by the way, I do have a plate of, of cheese and crackers here too. <laughs> so by all means, snack away. <laughs> um, and happy holidays to everybody. 
So and for, for those that are wondering what the heck's going on here from like the YouTube or the public Facebook side or whatever. So every week or nearly every week, because I do a lot of traveling too, Wednesday nights, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, we have what we call the Connecting the Universe Interactive class. So it's kind of like this, although we're just doing a recap. Um, but, you know, take your questions and uh, we have a nice interaction down there in the chat. But it's through the ConnectedUniversePortal.com. So ConnectedUniversePortal.com. It's a uh, you know, monthly membership, but and you get 30 days for free. You know, but there's a lot more material on the back end. Uh, we have all kinds of different videos, the travel blogs from like Egypt, Ireland, all over the place. And uh, there's a lot going on back there. So uh, that's what the weekly class is for those that are like, what is this connecting the universe thing? There you go. Um, but when it comes to the pole shift, what's interesting, so I quoted, um, so I, I put out that quote there about the uh, previous pole shift. And what's interesting, if you get a little bit further into that particular article, and I do mention it in the Alaska Triangle, uh, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle book, is that um, when that pole shift happened 42,000 years ago, it was right around the time of where you see a lot of cave drawings and, you know, whether it was in Spain or France or other places of the world, right around that 35 to 45,000 year point is where you see a lot of those sorts of things. And so one speculation was that because of that pole shift, that people started hiding in caves because the Earth's uh, magnetic shield that protects us from the sun's rays got down to about 8%. So imagine going outside in that, uh, you'd kind of get fried. So, so they believe that people were hiding in caves at that time to kind of get out from some of those harmful rays. And also, you would have seen some really massive auroras all over the world at that point in time. So uh, it was absolutely uh, a wild time to be alive. So uh, I'm going to move on, though, because we have a, a lot of these uh, different clips to go through. So this this one might take more than an hour here, and, um, and we'll be fine with that. So let's go ahead and get into our discussion, which is the future of humanity. And those that have been... Uh, partaking in the Connected Universe for a while are very familiar with, uh, with me talking about this particular issue that will happen in several billion years, and that is the red giant sun that our sun will become. Now, this is not going to happen for oh, another three to four billion years, which does seem like a long time. Uh, but it's inevitable that our sun will become a red giant and encompass the planet, uh, and Earth will be no more. So at some point in time, and we're starting to do it, we have to come up with solutions to get off the planet. And take a step back a little bit here, because this is the main issue. It is, it's happened before. So... Going back to the birth of our solar system, uh, many uh, many scientists these days believe that our solar system was birthed out of a 
previous solar systems. So our our planet, our Earth, is made up of planets, uh, asteroids, moons from a solar system that had previously been beforehand. And to keep in mind, our universe is 14 billion years old. Our planet is four and a half billion years old. So there's nine and a half billion years there in which other things have happened. So at some point in time, our solar system had been in another solar system that had like this uh, particular photo here had gathered up all of that dust and created planets had been born. Perhaps there was life. We don't know went through all of its phases with its with its star. Some believe that it may have been a dual solar system where it had two suns, it had two stars, uh, a binary system. That solar system expired, and then this new one formed up. Uh, and that's really fascinating to think about because perhaps our seeds of life for this planet came from that previous solar system. All right, there was a lot in that particular episode. I really liked that whole Future of Humanity uh, class that we did. Uh, real quick, though, kind of going back to the previous, uh, Judy Wilson asking what makes it move, talking about the, the pole shift. So the poles, when you're talking, talking about the Earth's magnetism, uh, you know, the Earth's protective shield, all of that. So uh, the... The Earth has a molten iron core that's spinning because the whole planet is spinning. So as that spins, it creates that magnetization. But, you know, it's it's not perfect. You know, things kind of ebb and flow and all of that. And so, you know, that's why, you know, the, you know, the Earth kind of goes in cycles and there's, um, you know, there's anomalies that happen. And when we talk about the uh you know the magnetism for the earth's magnetic core we talk about uh different energy hot spots on earth you know what's going on there you have the magnetism coming through the earth interacting with different metals and minerals and depending on what it interacts with it will create a different environment you know plus you have the earth's crust that is constantly moving and shifting you know this is why we have earthquakes and things like that so as the you know, as the planet spins, as Earth's crust moves, you know, as the molten iron core spins and does different things, uh, you're going to have the the two magnetic poles move around, and kind of with a lot of different things, you get to too much of an extreme and it'll flip. But it seems to naturally want to be north and south because when it does flip and the north is on the south and the south is on the north, it's for a much shorter period of time. So the last time that it happened, it lasted for about 400 years. But again, that was like 40-something thousand years ago. So we've had a much longer period of time where it's our more conventional north and south. So... um yeah, Jill saying, I remember being told our sun will eventually burn out, not get bigger. Have beliefs changed? Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. In a sense, it will burn out. But before it does so, it expands first. So it will first become a red giant before, and this is 
this is actually <clears throat> really fascinating because this was just uh, an article that was posted today. I threw it up there on my Facebook from the um, James Webb Telescope of, uh, of this nebula, which at the heart of it, um, well, it's a binary star system, but they believe there may be, now that they have some better imagery, there may be more stars within it. But it was previously a red giant as of 2,000 years ago before it imploded. And so uh, that's essentially the, the burnout is when it imploded, and now you have uh, white dwarfs that are within there. And so getting a look at this, is essentially taking a look at what our solar system will become. And it's sad to think of, yeah, this planet is not always going to, to be here, which is you know why during that particular episode of the our class of the future of humanity, you know, we talked about different things and ideas of getting off the planet that it does eventually have to happen. No, it's, you know, uh, Sun is not going to turn into a red giant during our lifetime or our children's lifetimes or our grandchildren's. But somewhere down the road, this is something that we need to eventually prepare for, which is why I am an advocate for, you know, space travel and trying to, to figure all of that out. Um, you know, logically, you know, if we're still futzing around, you know, a couple billion years from now, um, it would make sense to try to inhabit some of the outer solar system moons or, or something like that. There are some ones that have some water. So those would make sense. But at some point in time, we, we are going to have to get off the planet. So, um, all right. So moving on. Tom found everybody. All right, Tom. All right. Um, so let's see what our next clip is. Oh, other universes. So it's kind of similar theme. Here we go. What do you think another universe might look like? Which, yeah, I get is a little bit of a strange or an odd question. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't another universe look like ours, right? You know, if we're, if we're talking par parallel universes and things like that, we'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, but Sean, uh, Sean Coletta did, post a question here he asks this is a question with innumerable answers which is very true i've always imagined that another universe would be similar to star wars many races of beings advanced technology and the ability to travel among the stars with ease good i like that i like that the uh the star wars universe which may actually happen in our universe just not in our solar system at the moment here we go the multiverse um now, like I said, theoretical physicists, uh, many of them do actually believe in the idea of there being multiple universes out there, that there are these uh, the, the kind of quotas an ocean full of bubbles. And each one of those little bubbles is its own universe. And where we kind of know this from um, is the uh, Wilkinson. <laughs> it, this is kind of a tongue twister. Wilkinson microscopic and anisotropy probe. Try saying that three times fast. So it's a satellite that we put out there uh, in the early 2000s. It's really been superseded by the new uh, James Webb sa satellite. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Um, but the 
WMAP probe, uh, which is what they call it for short, basically it scanned the uh, the background radiation of the universe and gave us a lot of great information about the history of our universe and the formation of it. And we're talking 20 years ago now, or almost 20 years ago, that it was giving us this information. You know, we learned that the universe is expanding and replicating. So the idea that... Uh, that our own universe is spawning off other universes. So that's where we get this idea of these different bubble universes that uh, each one can actually replicate itself and create another one of these little bubbles. These would be actual physical universes, not the idea of, you know, another timeline has been separated off, you know, from ours, but in the same you know, soup that created our universe, these others spawned off, or like we said, they could be replicating. And within that universe, it has its own, its own physical property. So it has its own nuclear force, which is kind of interesting. So again, let's, let's bring up the, the image here. So imagine each one of these, you know, has its own little ecosystem going on inside. Now, some of these, could have a weaker nuclear force embedded in it, which could possibly prevent the formation of stars. So it, the universe could get started and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the lights go out. It's completely dark because stars are never able to get formed. Or conversely, it could have an even stronger nuclear force and stars do get formed, but they burn out way too quickly. And the system never has enough time to be able to develop life. Yeah, so I highly recommend Michio Kaku's Parallel Worlds book. Basically, I'd been reading that when we did that episode. Um, but it kind of you know, parallels pretty nicely with the Future of Humanity uh, episode as well, which is also... Some of his work is within there. So I'm I'm a huge Michio Kaku fan. Uh, and I think in the next clip, in the watch party clip, you give him a bit of a of a mention. But yeah, the whole idea there with the uh with the multiverse as like a uh you know the physical one. Because when it comes to the idea of every decision that you make spawns off another universe. And you guys who have been with me with the connected universe for a while uh, are familiar with this, that you know, we each have millions of decisions that we perform every single day. Like me just lifting this glass is a decision for that to spawn off another universe. I'm not on board with uh, that just because you would be spawning off infinite numbers of universes all the time. Um, and the idea of, you know, some people say, well, it's just like the major decisions you know, like you buying that house as opposed to the other one, that spawns off another universe. Well, okay, the, but what constitutes a major decision and who makes that decision as to what a major decision is to spawn off another universe? Eh. But with, uh, you know, some of our current physicists are saying, well, there could be physical universes out there, like, you know, something beyond our universe that has spawned off a bunch of other universes. Some get started, some don't. Ours did, which is kind of interesting to think about. And uh, 
There's Sarah. I missed the edge of the rabbit hole crew. Yeah, they're over there on, on YouTube. <laughs> There's a bunch of them over there, which is which is great. Um, yeah, Jill Nopchinski is down there. Eva Gellert, Judy Wilson. Uh, yeah, it's great to see them down there. Uh, so, all right. So the watch party last year, last year, geez, it was, it was almost a year ago, right? Um, but earlier this year for the Ancient Aliens episode on Shadow People. Um, I really appreciate everybody who came out to that. I'm going to go ahead and I have a little clip uh, from that. So this is something I know Sarah was asking about when The Unexplained aired, if we were going to do a watch party for that, which I would have, but I was on the road at the time. I uh, I was out in Oklahoma to, to see my kids, so or a couple of my kids in any case. So, but uh, that is something I would like to do because there, there's more of that coming up. So, um, in any case, here we go. Watch Party for Ancient Aliens. Um, Alina, yeah, like the whole episode is dedicated to this. I, I, so far, the episode is really good, I believe. They're hitting on a lot of different things, and they're going to, um, and I know some of the different things they're going to get into. You'd mentioned about, uh, will they be with you for the rest of your life? I, um Actually, we talked about this in the class last night, um, and I bring it up when I talk about personal resonance that, like I said, my, my first significant per, uh, paranormal experience was with a shadow person. I've seen apparitions too, but first one was a shadow person, second one was a shadow person as well. So I think my personal resonance and vibrations become more in tune to the shadow. So we have all kinds of things that surround us. Um, but I think as your frequency and vibration becomes more in tune with a uh, a specific type of you know, entity that you are able to see those more often than other things. A fish dimension, that's cute. I absolutely loved the bit with Michio. Um, when I was there in LA talking with the producers and we we're talking about some of these different ideas, um, we mentioned Michio, that you know he could talk about air dimensions, uh, you know, different realms, that sort of thing. And, you know, maybe they had a clip on that or what have you. And they did. And so I absolutely love it. Uh, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that I would love to have like a back and forth with with Michio. Um, and it wasn't a back and forth, but it was Michio and then me. And so I absolutely love that because um, I have a lot of respect for Michio Kaku. Yeah. So that last bit there that I said was actually the last comment that I had uh, in the interview when I was talking about from our planet to the solar system to the galaxy, all that stuff. That was my very last comment, um, which, which wrapped up the interview. Um, so, yeah, this is definitely fun. Betty, I'm glad Wayne got a lot from this episode. Um, Alina, you don't remember feeling, you don't always have to be hurt, paralyzed. Um, it, sometimes the sleep paralysis happens, sometimes it doesn't. I, I believe they're two different phenomena that can happen at the same time. So sleep paralysis is a real biological phenomenon. Shadow people are a real supernatural phenomenon. Sometimes they happen at the same time. Sometimes they don't. Yeah, I really do appreciate all the questions that you guys had during the watch party. Uh, that was really interactive. I, I enjoyed that. that we kind of sat down together, watched it, had some wine. <laughs> Had, had some snacks. Uh, it, it was a good time uh, doing that. So I uh, really appreciate everybody. And look at this. Tom goes out to to YouTube and uh, 
<laughs> says, good to see old friends. $10 super chat. Super chat superstar, Tom McNicholas. I miss saying that. Uh, when we did Edge of the Rabbit Hole, you know, he would he would do something like this. And, uh, of course, we'd, we'd call him super chat superstar. And uh, that was a little bit more prevalent on uh, the, well, had been the Haunted Road Media channel uh, before we moved over to the Edge of the Rabbit Hole channel. And, uh, yeah, and so, and there's Eva. Uh, hey, Rabbit Hole folks, good to see you, Eva. Eva, 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 God. <laughs> uh, it's always a good time. Yeah, that was. And uh, and Victoria asked me every once in a while, we're going to do Edge of the Rabbit Hole again. We were supposed to do some pop-up shows, which never happened because my schedule got too crazy. Because, um, like, we released um, Alexandra Holzer's book. And I wanted to bring her on to you know, talk about her new book and all that stuff because I actually published that and just never, the, the year kind of got away from us. So it happens. All right. So, uh, yeah, we are going to talk a little bit more about, you know, personal resonance and vibration, which was one of the topics that got brought up uh, during those little in-between segments on the watch party. But, of course, following uh, that, uh, that watch party in that episode, we had to talk about shadow manifestations. Comment here off of Instagram from Jesse. He says, every time I've heard of this phenomenon, it seems to be associated with sleep paralysis. But in every instance that I have had the experience, I was able to move about and chase or try to physically remove the presence. Never sleep paralyzed. I have, uh, I have been left with scratch marks and have put holes in the wall while trying to punch through the entity. In many cases, just yelling and charging it has resulted in the entity dissolving or retreating into closets or walls. So again, uh, you know, the, the, the account with the closet, but through walls. And it's kind of interesting. He, you know, he tried to get physical with the thing, punched through the shadow and, and, uh, and ended up hitting the wall. Uh, there was a gentleman who had sent me an account a few years back now where he had tried to shoot the thing. He had a gun in his nightstand drawer. And he thought there was an intruder in the house, but it was this this shadow, and he shot at it and uh, didn't hit it. You know, when he turned the light on, there were bullet holes in the wall, but no shadow, no shadow laying on the floor in the pool of its own shadowy black blood. You know, so uh, so interesting. And yeah, he did not have Jesse here did not have the sleep paralysis, which you don't have to have sleep paralysis when witnessing shadow people. And that's kind of just been a misnomer by the uh, by the medical community. They associate the what they call a hallucination of shadow entities as a result of sleep paralysis that you're still hallucinating or uh, seeing images out of your dreams, which you know people see shadow people all the time in broad daylight uh, or while walking around the house. It's it's not always in bed and you wake up and, and see the thing, and even then. Uh, when you wake up in bed, you're not always paralyzed. It's to me, it's two different phenomena that can happen at the same time. When it does happen, when you have the sleep paralysis and you're seeing the shadow entity, of course, it's very, uh, you know, traumatic because you, know, you can't move. Uh, you know, your first, your first inclination is not that there's a shadow person. Your first uh, thought is there's intruder in the house. Somebody's broken into the house. They're in my room. I am in danger. And then if you have the sleep paralysis and you can't move, it becomes doubly frightening because now you're feeling extremely, extremely vulnerable. I can't move. And there's this intruder in the house. 
what is about to happen to me. And, and so it's like this whole rabbit hole that you end up, uh, you know, falling down because adrenaline starts kicking up, the fear starts kicking up, all of that. And a lot of people have attributed the sleep paralysis part of it to the entities causing the paralysis sort of thing. Uh, but again, I believe that there are two separate things happening at the same time. Yeah, that's a big section of my book, A Walk in the Shadows. Uh, and I always end up talking about the story of my son, Cameron. And uh, Jill Nachinsky said, have some more wine, Mike. And I did refill my glass. So there we go. It's time to enjoy. It's the holidays. Um, I saw the story of my son, Cameron, where uh, you know he would come up to the bed at night and he would just stand there and stare, you know, usually a child comes up to the bed, they tap him in the shoulder. Hey, you know, I had a bad dream. I need to use the bathroom, need to drink water, something like that. And you go and you take care of it. But Cameron would just stand there and stare and you'd suddenly wake up. You know, oh, my God, Cameron, what are you doing? And, you know, he would say what the issue was. But the question was always, OK, what was it that woke you up? And we're going to talk about it here in a second. It was that toroidal field of energy that everybody has. You know, it extends out several feet from from our bodies. And so, um, you know, I, I believe what's going on. So, in in that case, in in that sense, you know, it's Cameron's energy, his presence that would wake me up. And so, same thing with the shadow entity, where it's the energy and presence of the shadow entity that's waking you up. And then, boom, you see it there. You think there's an intruder, you know, adrenaline starts rushing and, you know, the whole rabbit hole like I was talking about. So, um, so interesting. You have to tell me a little bit more about that, Jen. Uh, maybe you, oh, okay, where she would stand there and stare at you and now, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Maeve and Cameron, two peas in a pod. <laughs> Big age difference, though. Um, and hey, there's Victoria. We were just talking about you. She said, just popped in to share some holiday uh, spirit. Yeah, there we go. Good to see you, my friend. My cousin, too, by the way. All right, which is funny because we didn't figure that out and realize that until, I don't know, what, several months, maybe a year into doing the rabbit hole together, which is kind of funny. Um, so, and Alina says, I used to see Shadow Man in a fedora hat and raincoat when I was a child. That's interesting. I would like to hear more about uh, your experience and, and uh, what happened uh, during that. Because uh, that that is, you know, it's interesting. I've seen a lot of different shadow phenomena, but I've never actually seen what they call the hat man. So, uh, but a lot of different varying stories um, about the hat wearing entities, different situations, uh, different things that they're doing. Sometimes they're flanked by other shadow entities. So uh, very interesting. Uh, and yeah, sometimes they do wear the fedora. Interesting, it's a raincoat. Um, some people report like a trench coat or something like that. Sometimes they're like in a suit. Uh, sometimes they're wearing a top hat uh, with, with or without a cape. So there's a lot of different ways that they can be, they can be seen, which is interesting. Uh, all right. So uh, moving on from that, Jill says, cheers. Tom is going to go make a drink. All right. All right. Next clip here, we're moving on to, oh, okay, light, uh, light resonance and vibration. Um, 
yeah, this one's a little bit of a longer clip, but it adheres to what we were talking about during the uh, watch party clip. It's really only a small piece of what's going on around us. So the, the bottom bar here is a visible light that we see with our eyes to the uh, left is ultraviolet, to the right is infrared. Neither one of those spectrums can we see into. Um, some people say that we do see slightly into the infrared out of our periphery. So we take in a little more light over there. Um, but you straight on, of course, we're not going to see that. And we have other devices that uh, that we use to be able to see into some of these other spectrums. But there are other things going on here. If you look at the top bar, that we certainly are not seeing. We're not seeing microwaves. We're not seeing radar, radio. Uh, we're not seeing X-rays or gamma rays. You know, we say a lot of times in this field, there's you know there are things going on around us that we cannot see with our own eyes. That if you were to lift that veil, you would see uh, so much more that's going on. So you know, I like uh, you, know, you know when we talk about that veil. Tom talking about. Um, you know, historical figures from our past and things like this. I like Jeanette's idea of, uh, you know, you lift that veil and you you can see the connections in these strings and energy and, and all that. Something that's kind of interesting is our word specter that we use, kind of an archaic term these days, but um, a term that we would usually use for like ghosts. Um, specter is actually derived from the word spectrum and we were just looking at the visible light spectrum uh, so there had been some previous notion about witnessing these entities on some different frequency of light that there is something going on here with light with wavelengths with energy that was different and we've mentioned here a couple times lately about vibration and that yeah, everything is vibrating to, to some degree. Uh, you Any object around you right now, uh, even though it seems solid, it really isn't. Every, every little atom within that object is actually vibrating. Uh, so if you were to, theoretically, if you were to find that correct frequency, you could pass through it. We haven't really figured that out yet. <laughs> um, but the human beings, you guys have seen this uh, image from me before. This is the toroidal field of energy uh, that surrounds every person. We each have this uh, going on. So frequency, just by definition, is the number of vibrations per second. So uh, we were talking before about atoms vibrating, we are vibrating, humans are vibrating. And so the number of vibrations per second, that is the frequency. When we use the term resonance, that is a phenomenon in which an external force or a vibrating system forces another system around it to vibrate with greater amplitude at a specified frequency of operation. So um, that's kind of by definition, but basically, um, the resonance is one object is vibrating and it's basically vibrating another object and you get that amplitude coming off of it. And so that's the resonance. So when we talk like a, a personal resonance, that is that uh, frequency and vibration that is emanating off of you. And 
I've used this illustration before. Tom, you're there. <laughs> uh, when I've talked about the girl at Mineral Springs. Yeah, Tom, you were there. <laughs> the girl at Mineral Springs. And basically, in that clip, I launch into that whole story. I've told it here many, many times before. And I will tell it again here. Just and I'll make it a real quick one. Um, Sarah says, don't remember the light being that uh, so bright back then. Different camera. Because um, I had dropped my my good camera at that time, the one that I actually filmed a lot of the Shadow Dimension uh, footage with, I dropped that off of Cathedral Rock in Sedona. So that broke. And in fact, when I tried to fix it, because the error that it was giving, it's like, okay, I, there might be some things I can do internally to be able to fix that, open it up, and pieces are falling out. And no. Um, so it was an older camera, another camera that I was temporarily using until I got this one. Um, so that was that deal. And so, uh, yeah, there's uh, Tom. Yes, I was. And and Eva knows the story too. Pearl, yes, because it started in Pearl's room. And oh, Jesus, uh, there's Victoria. <laughs> so would a first date be an amplitude modulation? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. Oh, that's hilarious. All right. So, um, yeah, so we're in Pearl's room, and we start hearing some noises from down the hall, go out there, and there's black smoke coming from down the hall. This is at Mineral Springs Hotel, Alton, Illinois. Sorry, forgot to preference it with that. Highly recommend going there if you're a paranormal investigator. Check it out, investigate, all that wonderful stuff. And even if you're not, Alton, Illinois, Mineral Springs Hotel contains within it it's raining Zen, fantastic metaphysical, metaphysical shop. Um, if you're into incense, if you're into crystals, um, if you're into cards, they have a lot of great stuff. Um, they're good friends of mine too. So, you know, uh, all right. So you see the black smoke rolling from down the end of the hallway. It's coming closer. It's coming closer. Make a long story short, too late. Uh, it ends up morphing into the apparition of a little girl. What's interesting and where this concept comes into play is that we all saw her a little bit differently. So I saw her fully formed from her head all the way down to about her knees, and then she started to dissipate away. Others saw her fully formed at her feet. Nick Moulet, he mentions this in the Shadow Dimension, he saw her fully formed at her feet, and then as it went up, kind of dissipated away at her head. Um, and that's because we all have a little bit of a different personal resonance about us. We all vibrate a little bit differently. The uh, human body vibrates within a frequency range that's about like 9 to 16 hertz, but everybody falls in that spectrum a little bit differently. And of course, these entities also have their own personal resonance and vibration. And so depending on how you line up, you're going to see these things a little bit differently. And, uh, oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, I remember you were there at the event, Eva. Um, so you were there, but with another group. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, I remember I told this story recently to Jen that, uh, that I called you Ava, and you corrected me that it's Eva. <laughs> All right. And, uh, hey, there's Sharon Lane. Great to see you, Sharon. Happy holidays 
from Houston. All right. So you and Victoria are pretty close. All right. And uh, Tom has a new video camera. He's going to try soon. Fantastic. As Judy has a question here. So higher you vibrate, the more you will see. Well, I wouldn't say that. It's just you're going to see different things. Okay. Um, you're going to see things that that vibrate um, or resonate at that frequency, where if you're at a lower vibration in frequency, you're going to see more of those type of things. And that doesn't necessarily mean that shadows are lower vibrational beings or whatever. You know, people will go there, oh, they're lower vibrational beings, they're the dark as the dark, they're evil, that sort of thing. It doesn't mean that. It just means that um, that is the frequency at which they uh at which they vibrate at which at which they resonate so um so you're just going to see different things not necessarily more like i see more shadows and apparitions sometimes i will see apparitions but it's not as often as i see shadows but that doesn't mean i'm evil <laughs> and yes sharon representing clan grants so um Three clan grants in the house, myself, Sharon, and Victoria. All right. Um, all right. Sarah asking, will we do more investigations with the connected universe? I would certainly like to. Um, I'm working on some different things uh, for 2023 that um, we'll see how things pan out. This past year had a lot of different things going on. So um, we'll see how all the pieces fall into place. But yes, I would like to do uh, more of that with uh, with Connected Universe. So, um, all right. So let's get into the next clip because I'm only halfway through the clips. We're already 45 minutes into the <laughs> into the class uh, or into the show, whatever you want to call this evening. Like I said, we're probably going to go a little bit longer than usual. Usually this is an hour. It's probably going a little bit longer because you're not going to see me again for almost a month. So, well, I mean, I am, I will say this on the connected universe portal, I will post uh, different videos. You know, we'll do some behind the scenes stuff. We'll do some Mike's morning mugs. Of course, we have another monthly Q and a video coming up. We'll do all of those different things. Uh, we're just not going to do the Wednesday class again until the new year. So, and uh, yeah, sharing this, uh, this year has been crazy and uh clan brain says hello all right well thank you brain all right and uh yeah five of us definitely had great energy yeah five of us five of us saw her that night that was interesting um all right so let's get to the next clip which is what are we on okay this is actually the longest clip uh stargates of ancient egypt and this probably took up too much of my afternoon trying to pare this down um because the way Hatshepsut's temple is set up is fascinating and so if you haven't signed up yet there's still a chance to sign up for stargates of ancient egypt muhammad has that registration open up until i think january 8th so which is really cutting it short i understand that um and we will be going to Hatshepsut's temple uh because of course we're doing stargates of ancient egypt so it, it's really really fascinating the way all of this works out here we go 
hatch up sets temple. What's fascinating about this setup, now the uh, proposed stargate is all the way straight back up the stairs and into the Holy of Holies. And we're kind of, we're going to kind of take a walk into all of this. On either side of the staircase, there are, it's been recarved over the years. So here you see it depicted as uh, the falcon, so Horus. But that's not the original carving. It was originally a snake. And in fact, if you look at the right side of this particular photo, you can see the snake tail. The snake was the symbol of energy. So what's fa fascinating about this is you have the two snakes on either side of the uh, staircase heading straight back up into the temple as we get into the Holy of Holies. To the left of this temple is the base of what had been a pyramid. If you subscribe to the idea that these pyramids were, Christopher Dunn has his uh, theory of the Giza power plant. So whether or not there was an entire contraption inside generating energy, or some people believe that if not a machine inside of it, that it was still at least harnessing the earth energy power you know, that vortex energy, when we talk about telluric currents, that sort of thing. We have a center of energy here on the side of the pyramid. We see the symbolism of the snakes and the energy going straight back up into the temple itself. So I have a short video clip. This is Mohammed kind of describing some of this. This is the title we are looking for. Here the star and the word gate, but here it doesn't say just the star gate, it says great star gate. There is a, a vertical symbol. Can you see the, the symbol gate? Next to it, something like a bin. Okay? That means great. Great star gate. Here when you look at the Hadur, you can see one, the gate above the head, and there are two cobras inside. So we are talking about him, very strong energy. So this is the, the inner courtyard. Uh, this is just past that uh, area where he was showing uh, the Stargate on the uh, uh, next to the doorway. And there's then the inner sanctum that you can see straight back. There's a passageway into basically the side of the hill is where they uh, carve this out of. Now, you guys have seen this, this photo here coming up before. I get a kick out of this photo because it, the sign says, Dear Tour Guides, kindly don't explain inside this part. We appreciate your cooperation. They do not want the tour guides inside this area telling people what's really going on. But yet, right above this and right above this sign, you see the Stargate symbolism there. Through that doorway, there are a couple of guards sitting there. They will not let you all the way back, unfortunately. Unless you're Johnny Enoch and you go up there super early away from the group and slip the guy some money before anybody else gets up there. What is beyond there, so this is actually my, uh, my photo. The guards took the photo. But you can see there's even another doorway further back inside. And that room back there is known as the Holy of Holies. Back inside the Holy of Holies here, this is our 
Stargate room. This is the Stargate itself. And inside there, you have this very, very interesting cartouche filled with stars. So you have all this symbolism of the Stargate leading back into this room where then you have the actual stars in the Stargate. All right, yeah, I know there's a lot there. And again, I pared all of that down. So uh, yeah, Jen says, come to Egypt. Yeah, we're, we're all set. We are really psyched and stoked for that. Um, Jen and I are actually going to spend a day in Paris before we go out to Egypt. So that's going to be awesome. Um, Karen says, sounds like a great trip. Yep, absolutely. Uh, you were talking, uh, you know, 12 days of exploring ancient Egypt plus four of them are a Nile cruise. Yeah, uh, definitely great stuff. So you can uh, go to, you know, you go to my website, MikeRickSucker.com, find the tour information, um, you know, any of my social media. Actually, those that are on YouTube, there is a link down in the description for it. I made sure to include it uh, so you can check that out. And uh, Victoria's challenged me, say that three times fast. Hatchets, it's simple. Hatchets, it's simple. Hatchets, it's simple. With two glasses of wine. So there we go. <laughs> it is, it is a a little tricky, I will admit. So, um, yeah, and Sarah, just remember to come back if you manage to go through a Stargate. Yeah, um, and, and see, and that's the thing, is that, for one, whatever technology that was there to power it, like with Hatchetsup's Temple, you know, it's believed that it was the small pyramid off to the side, which, you know, there's nothing left of it but the base if it was a physical Stargate, but there's also the idea of Stargates uh, to enter altered states of consciousness to actually, you know, basically send your consciousness elsewhere to essentially astral project, which would be um, a type of star travel, you know, if you're going to somewhere else in the cosmos sort of thing. Um, Sharon is saying, uh, Egypt probably is where human life began on Earth. It is one of our, you know, oldest, um, one of our oldest areas on Earth. Um, you know, you look at, okay, the Sphinx. Um, that is extremely old. You know, we're talking 10,000 years. Uh, some people, depending on the dating, believe it's even longer. Uh, I think there's enough proof now that it's not younger, like traditionally had been thought of beforehand. Gobekli Tepe, um, Gura Payang. Uh, you see some of these really, really ancient places. So, um, but then there's, you know, the civilization that was before. And yes, we are going to talk about Atlantis a little bit later. We're almost an hour in. Um, but uh, the survivors of that, you know, creating a new civilization. So, all right. Um yeah, Victoria, better gas mileage with uh, astral projection. Um, is it still there? If not, why did it go? Um, oh, the pyramid. Yeah. Um, not really sure what happened to the pyramid. I mean, uh, what happened in a lot of cases was um, over the millennia, as these different sites were no longer used uh, or became abandoned, other people would come along and take the blocks for construction material. So, 
you see like, okay, with like the Great Pyramid of Giza, the, the casing blocks, the white limestone casing blocks that went up the side of the pyramid, which made it look beautiful. Most of those are gone. There's only a few left. Those were basically stolen from the pyramid and repurposed into uh, different temples, religious structures, homes throughout Cairo. So if you want to see the white limestone casing box, you have to venture into Cairo to see them. All right. Um, and Victoria, could that be a landing pad instead of a pyramid? Not in this case. It is pretty much a fact that that was a, a pyramid. Um, and tactical G-spot, I think the Egyptians did brain surgery back then. Amazing, intelligent culture. Yeah. Um, and and I, I saw your, your post there down in uh, YouTube about the brain surgery. You know, hope, you know, thoughts and prayers your way. Hope all that is healing well. And there was, I think it was, was it Sharon that also mentioned something about that? Um, in any case, yeah, at, at Kamumbo Temple, you see depicted all the different medical instruments uh, on on one of the walls there, and they have some very very sophisticated uh, tools. So, all right, we need to move on to the next clip, and we are taking kind of an abrupt turn uh, into legendary creatures. So, do keep in mind that as we go through the evening, uh, the tales and creatures and entities and beings that we're going to talk about, they grew out of something that was experienced a long time ago. And we're not going down the extraterrestrial route the, uh, tonight, but um, when we do talk about interdimensional beings, it could be ETs. And it does, these this phenomenon, these stories do grow out of somebody's experiences. Now with the older uh, legends and lore or the older beings and entities legend and lore grew up around those things but somewhere in there in the beginning there is original truth so where we're going to start this evening is something that i haven't talked about before although this being has been an interest of mine for 20 years since it was first revealed i posted an article on this uh on my facebook this morning and also on twitter and that is what people keep referring to as the hobbits, homo, if I can say it right, uh, homo floresiensis. Uh, basically, this is a tiny diminutive uh, hominin from the island of Flores, which is in Indonesia, discovered in 2003. Uh, the information on it was published in 2004. These things stand at just, just about three and a half feet tall and weigh only about 66 pounds. So really your classic hobbit size. Uh, the the tales from J.R.R. Tolkien, when he talked about hobbits, they, they were only about three and a half, not quite four feet tall. Uh, anybody who ever played Dungeons and Dragons, that was the size that you gave uh, hobbits or halflings is what they called them in Dungeons and Dragons. So uh, these, these beings date to between 100,000, 60,000 years ago. Uh, they... Uh, tools of them appear in the fossil record from 190,000 to 50,000 years ago. So it means that these uh, hominins shared their world with modern humans. So now what's interesting about this and why I bring it up is there's been an article here recently and actually a book that's coming out uh, by anthropologist Gregory Forth, who works at the University of Alberta in Canada. And he claims that the hobbits may still 
hide today and reside in the lush rainforest of Flores, the island in which uh, their fossils have been found. A quote from him says, 20 years previously, when I began ethnographic fieldwork on Flores, I heard tales of human-like creatures, some still reputedly alive, although very rarely seen. All right, and, and Eva says, my people... <laughs> In Victoria, he has kind eyes. Well, I mean, artist interpretation, so he's got to make them likable. Um, but speaking of that book, because that that was before the book came out, I did pick up the book between ape and human. What's interesting is that you know this is an anthropologist, like decades, um, you know, somebody legit in the field, and th this is actually a cryptozoology book. It really is. And so that's great that you finally have, well, and there have been, there have been some over the years, but, you know, a, a modern anthropologist, you know, out of the mainstream writing a cryptozoology, cryptozoology book. So for those that are into um, like Sasquatch, Bigfoot, um, Hairy Man, uh, Kushtaka, anything like that, there you go. Um, get a you know a mainstream anthropologist view on cryptozoology because you know, he he believes the stories that are coming out there. He's never seen one himself. Uh, you know the the evidence is scant, very little, but um, but he talks about it in here, which is which is fascinating. It's great that somebody's come out like that. So um, all right, so this is interesting. Alina says I have big. Uh, Bigfoot group, couple of witness encounters of three foot tall humanoid creatures. Yeah, um, I, I'm not going to be able to get into it all tonight, but I have a lot of interesting theories about the the smaller uh, three foot entities. And when we were in um, when we were Ireland, when we go down the road of leprechauns and fairies, and actually a big part of that legendary creatures episode uh, was on. Uh, fairy and folklore and we got into some of the different things that we actually saw here in the United States on um, uh, at Hinsdale and, and different things that we've actually witnessed in regards to that so uh, you know very very interesting uh, Sharon Lane Hawaiian Islands have accounts of these people yeah in, in Hawaiian Islands actually not all that far you know geographically speaking from Flores this is right it's the right part of the globe uh, but really, when you look at cultures from all over the world, they all report in some way, shape, or form these smaller type creatures. So they have existed, and they were real. Now, I think over the years, like I was mentioning at the beginning of that clip, it was legend and lore that's been compounded on top of it to kind of explain it. But at the root of it is a piece of truth. So they really did exist. And the fact that you found these, you know, quote unquote, hobbit type people, you know, smaller statured humanoid figures that, okay, it, le it lends a lot of credence to that these peoples actually existed. So, and Jill saying, yeah, I, I have to get that book. I, I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's uh, for, for those listening to the podcast version later, if this makes it to, because <laughs> the podcast is only an hour. Um you know, Gregory Fourth between ape and human. So, all right. Um, and yeah, uh, Sharon Lane, St. Cherokee of North Carolina, talk about them. Yep. 
Um, Tom wanting to experience like time at Hinsdale. Okay, cool. All right. We're already an hour into this. We're supposed to be ending right now. <laughs> it's all right. Let's 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 move on. All right. Switching gears again. Uh, we also did the class on the UAP hearing. You know, it was really kind of in the middle of a lot of other things that we were doing, but it happened and it was important. Um, I just, I love the way Mike Gallagher just grills these guys. We're going to talk about some of these uh, different points here. It's also been reported uh, that there have been UAP observed uh, and interacting with and flying over sensitive military facilities, particularly, not just ranges, but uh, some facilities housing our strategic nuclear forces. Uh, one such incident allegedly occurred uh, uh, at Malmstrom Air Force Base, in which 10 of our nuclear ICBMs were rendered inoperable. At the same time, a glowing red orb was observed overhead. I'm not commenting on the accuracy of this. I'm simply asking you whether you're aware of it and whether you have any comment on the accuracy of that report. Let me pass that to Mr. Bray. You've been looking at UAPs over the last uh, three years. Uh, that data is not uh, within the holdings of the UAP task force. Okay, but are you aware of the, the report or that the data exists somewhere? I have uh, I have heard stories. I have not seen the official data on that. So you've just seen informal stories, no official assessment that you've done or exists within DOD that you're aware of uh, regarding the Malmstrom incident. Uh, all I can speak to is you know what's within my cognizance, the UAP task force, and we have not looked at that incident. Well, I, would say, I mean, it's a pretty high-profile incident. Uh, I, I don't claim to be an expert on this, but that's out there in the ether. You're, you're the guys investigating it. I mean, if, who else is doing it? If something was officially brought to our attention, we would look at it. Uh, there are many things that are out there in the ether that aren't officially brought to our attention. So how would it have to be officially brought to your Excuse attention? I'm bringing it to your attention. Sure, so. This is pretty official. Sure. <laughs> I love that. I absolutely love Mike Gallagher became like my new favorite congressman uh, in, in that moment. He's from Wisconsin, by the way. Uh, yeah. He, he basically takes Bray and Moultrie to task and he's like, yeah, Moultrie said, well, you know, you need to file this official. He's like, yeah, we're in a congressional hearing. This is pretty dang official, you know? So, um, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff right there where, um, and Gallagher wasn't the, the only one, um, but he, he was the most vocal and he, he brought a lot of the really good points. You know, first and foremost, it's just great that they are having this uh, this hearing to begin with because this was something that the government didn't want to touch at all. But it's become there, – there's too much out there now these days. You know, they, they can't deny it anymore where, you know, you, somebody would take a fuzzy photograph and they'd say, oh, it's this, that, or the other thing. But there's too much – advanced technology getting to the hands of the average consumer these days that are able to take some of these photographs and videos that are really, really good of some of this, you know, phenomena. Plus, you know, you have the military reporting some of it now as well, you know, that's actually, you know, getting leaked that they can no longer deny. And so, you know, they've kind of taken the first step of saying, yeah, there's something there that we don't know and that's the part where you want them to get over the hump and, you know, fess up and admit yeah, there is something there. So it, it is a good first step. Uh, it's taken 60 years to get here, 70 years to get here. Um, 
Yeah, Roswell happened in 47. The big UFO flap uh, was 52. So, you know, do some math, 52, and it's 2022. So that's 70 years. Um, yeah, it's been a long time for them to finally, you know, come clean with, with some of this stuff. You know, you have, and I have it back there on my shelf, uh, the Hynek UFO report. You know, J. Allen Hynek went into this uh, in the late 40s, early 50s, and on through the 60s. You know, he started off as a skeptic. He didn't believe in UFO activity. And after working with Project Blue Book for so long, um, he's like, okay, yes, there's something here. There's absolutely something here. To the point where he got a cameo on uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But what's really distressing and disheartening is the fact that you have two officials here, Bray and Moultrie, that can't answer a single question and act like they have no idea about the Maelstrom case, which is extremely significant and high profile because of the fact that it dealt with nuclear missiles. It's like, how, how can you... I, you're supposed to be the public spokesperson for this. And yes, while you may not know all the details of those that are more intimately involved, you have to at least have heard of it. And for them to not is disheartening. So there's pros and cons to the whole thing. It's great that there's a conversation about it now. Um, in my Alaska, my Alaska's Mysterious Triangle book, I did hammer the... Uh, UAP report from the prior year, the written document that came out, because um, it really, really skirted around the issue. So I felt that it did a disservice to, because it only talked about stuff from the early 2000s onward. It, I felt it did it did a disservice to the older programs like Grudge, Sign, Blue Book, and all of that. Um, so the hearing and by it being in a public forum, and you had guys like Mike Gallagher, you know, Asking, asking some pertinent questions, I think that did more of a service to uh, the field than that initial UAP, UAP report did. Um, all right. So let me see some of the comments in here. Um, yeah, Judy asking, so why don't they prove that they are here? Hmm. Well, let me put, let me throw this one out there. I just try to look at it from the other perspective. You know, let's say we were the ones going to some other planet, you know, and we were outnumbered 8 billion to five, you know, or whatever it is. You know, maybe it's a little more than that, you know, depending on if it's a single craft or, you know, maybe many have come or whatever. Uh, or, you know, we're greatly outnumbered. Um, do we want to make our presence that much known, you know, that we've we've set down? Usually, I mean, what we would what we would probably do going to another planet, we might make some contact with the officials there. Yeah, not sure. I mean, if we if we determine there's intelligent life on that planet, what we're probably going to do first is watch and observe and research before we actually say, "Hi, we're here." Um, and even if we do, we're probably going to do that on a limited basis because of the fact that. You know, we know at least um, with humans, you know, we fear what we don't understand. And so when we fear we, what we don't understand, we either, it's, it's fight or flight. And so a lot of people are going to run in fear. Others are going to 
grab their shotguns and and shoot. You know, they're going to fight. So uh, we would be very, um, we would try to protect ourselves in that case and take very careful steps along the way, uh, you know, to prevent anything, anything from happening that would like, you know, harm us really. So, uh, Pamela Jean saying we have we have proved they are here. I think there's enough evidence to show that they've um, that that they've have visited. They've been here um, not only in the past and the present and all that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and Sarah saying you you're the one who always says time doesn't exist. Yeah, and I'm not even doing anything about the real time travel episode uh, in this clip show for lack of a better term for for what we're doing right now our end of the year review uh but i did just post on it's the mike ricksecker channel now uh the real time travel basically condensed version of our class so um all right a lot of comments coming in which is great and yeah uh humans humans make war we have a tendency to do that so great to see you betty awesome Todd McNicholas homemade wine. That's essentially what this is. Yes, Pinot, uh, Pinot Noir. Whacking it into my uh, plate there. Uh, Gates of Conflict. Let's see here. My only issue with UFO is the fact that it stands for unidentified flying object. And many who understand that take the word and run with it. I'm not saying that nothing is out there. I'm sure there is. Well, okay. So what's interesting about that, so with unidentified flying object, They've started using the term UAP these days, which, and, I, and I've seen um, my colleague, Travis Taylor, uh, do this on either Ancient Aliens or Skinwalker Ranch, where he will like very, very carefully differentiate a UAP or a UFO, um, where like a UAP could be something like a glowing ball of light that's in the sky, where a UFO would be like an actual you know, craft that they've you know been able to see, um, you know, because aerial phenomena could mean a lot of different things. And in either case, it's unidentified. So if you see something in the sky and you don't know what it is, that makes it unidentified by definition. So um, Victoria, more, more chocolate Loki. Yeah. Um, I don't have any more of the Loki that, that you had sent from last year. <laughs> um, is the wine to get through the class? The wine is to, to celebrate because it's the end of the year, it's the holidays. We're celebrating. Um, yeah, and Eva. Yeah, but for how long? I'd just like to see the land in my backyard to have a Q&A. And that's what I always say when people have asked me about the shadow person stuff. It's like, you know, I, I have a lot of different theories and ideas and... I've seen a lot in my day and I've done a lot of research and I put together the book and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I always maintain that we won't truly know what they are until we like sit down and actually have a conversation with them. And even then, depending on the particular type of shadow or in this case, ET, um, depending on which one it is, you're going to get a different answer. Cause I, I think there are a lot of different kinds. Okay. So let's move on. We still have a lot more to cover. So that was UAP hearing. So we came out of UAPs. Um, 
And just before going to Ireland, we had a couple other different topics here because UAP here, and I think that was, this was the beginning of June, right? Doppelgangers. So what's an actual real doppelganger case? Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, the 18th century German poet. Fascinating story here. So in his autobiography, Dichtung und Wahrheit, or in English, Poetry and Truth, Goethe recounted a confrontation he once had with his own doppelganger. So he was on the road traveling to Drusenheim to visit a young woman with whom he was having an affair. He was distressed at the time, lost in his own thoughts, not really sure what he was distressed about, unless, okay, he was having an affair, so maybe he's, you know, distressed about getting caught. But in any case, um, so he's he's walking uh, down the road. And at one point, Goethe glanced up for a moment and spotted a man dressed in a gold-trimmed gray suit. And you kind of look at this painting here, and, and you see in the painting, it's kind of like a dark gray color, and maybe the lining is kind of a silverish, but you, know, you could kind of construe it goldish. So is I I wonder looking at this painting, is this the is this the suit that he's talking about? I don't know. But just as quickly as Guta spotted this man in this gold trimmed gray suit, the man suddenly vanished. Totally shocking. You know, you, you would remember that one for a while if somebody just kind of disappeared right in front of you. You know, here's this unusual man in the in a gold trim gray suit. Nice looking suit. Oh, boom, poof, he's gone. Several years later, he was traveling on the same road, heading in the opposite direction. And suddenly he realized he was wearing the same gold trimmed gray suit he had seen on the vanishing man years beforehand. And like Connie. Uh, it'd be very helpful. Send my doppelganger ahead to get dinner started. Then I show up and it's ready. Awesome. Oh, you could send yourself to go get dinner for sure. All right. Yeah, I don't think Connie's on. She's probably traveling again. Connie's always traveling. Um, first, Tom McNicholas, super sticker. Thank you very much, Tom. He has a, uh, on the sticker, it's a cat with a thumbs up. So appreciate that, Tom. This is the second super chat this evening. So absolutely, uh, thank you, my friend, and happy holidays, Merry Christmas to you. So, um, so this is interesting. Uh, it, it's aside from doppelgangers, but for those that uh, have been members of the Connecting Universe portal, um, partake in the weekly Connecting the Universe class. We've been doing that on or in a secret Facebook group. And so I'm using StreamYard to broadcast. And so uh, there's a little back and forth between Alina and Sarah about the, the Facebook scenes because uh, Alina came up as Facebook user there. And she's like, I have to do that again. Okay, so what's going to happen in the new year? We have a webinar uh webinar access that we will be starting for the new year. I'll provide you guys with all the information so you don't have to worry about that whole Facebook user thing and setting the use and setting the permissions and all that stuff. We'll have a different thing to access going into next year. I could have started at the end of this year, but I was like, yeah, I don't want to confuse anybody. We'll just start that next year. So, um, so there we go. So Sharon with, and I love this question. Can a doppelganger be a time slip experience? Absolutely. And so um, 
and this is something I've talked about a few different times with uh, with doppelgangers, is that you know, I believe some are really a time slip experience. So in my book, A Walk in the Shadows, when uh, I talk about doppelgangers, because I do get asked, you know, are doppelgangers or are, or are some shadow people doppelgangers, that sort of thing. And in a sense, so interesting story that was related to me some time, uh, some years back was a uh, uh, young adult male when he was much younger as a child, he had walked into his kitchen. He saw a shadow standing there by the, uh, by the kitchen table as a tall, dark hooded figure. He booked out of the room. Years later, he's in the kitchen. He's at the kitchen table making a sandwich and he sees in the doorway coming into the room, a small childlike shadow that ends up turning and running from the room. And he realizes right then, oh my gosh, that was me when I was younger. And when I was younger, I saw myself older, kind of like what we were talking about with Goethe, where um, he actually ended up realizing he saw himself at a different point in time, walking along the other side of the road. This, this guy, basically, uh, when he was younger, he saw himself as older. When he was older, he saw himself as younger. But because of, and, and I'm guessing in this case, because there's no way to know for sure, that the, the resonance and vibration that we talked about earlier wasn't perfect. So it, it only came off as a bit of a shadow. Um, another interesting story, In a Walk in the Shadows, um, my friend Meg, uh, in her experience with uh, her mother at her house, which was a very haunted house, but I think there's a lot more going on there with the energy at that particular house. We're basically, um, you know, kind of the same thing where she thought that she had seen her mother's doppelganger because it was middle of the night. Mother comes into the kitchen, runs off to the bedroom, you know, kind of shocked seeing Meg standing there in the kitchen. She runs after her, goes into the bedroom and her mother's sleeping there in bed. So what in the world was that? Um, again, I think it was another type of time slip. So, um, and the question is, why does that happen? So, um, this is where I get into stack time theory. And maybe I should have included a clip of it with this, with, with all of this, but I didn't. Um, so, uh, Gates of Conflicts, since you're out there on the YouTube channel, after this, check out, and I just posted it yesterday, um, my real time travel video. It talks about what I call stack time theory. And I actually have some older videos, much older videos on the YouTube channel um, talking about stack time theory. And basically, um, the crux of it is that time doesn't really exist. <laughs> that every moment that take a place, you know, like right, right where you're sitting or standing, where I'm sitting right now, everything that has happened is happening and will happen or actually all happening concurrently. Time doesn't really exist. It's all happening at the same time. But we sometimes get a glimpse of another moment in time because for whatever reason, we don't quite understand what the catalyst is, but two of those moments will resonate on the same frequency and we'll get some sort of bleed over from that point in time. And so we'll get a, an opportunity to look into the past or look into the future. It's kind of like those moments where 
if you see you know, some sort of apparition, or it might not even be an apparition, it might be somebody that just looks out of place in time, and they look at you as if you're the ghost. Yeah, and you're looking at them like they're the ghost, and they're looking at you like you're the ghost, um, and that's actually you know, a, a, a time slip. So um, that's a whole class in and of itself, but I recommend that video. And uh, yeah, that was, that was a class that we did um, what was it, back in August, something like that. Um, Judy's asking, does it have something with the poles moving to? All of it plays into it. So, I mean, with the poles moving, like we talked about at the very beginning, I mean, that's magnetization of the earth. So anytime that you have uh, an interaction with a magnetic field, it's going to do different things. So, you know, could the pole shift uh, have some sort of play in that? Possibly, possibly. And Sharon's saying, I, I think Einstein believed in stack time theory. Uh, yeah, I mentioned Einstein in that video. Um, I will say he came up with it before me <laughs> uh, with his theories on space-time continuum and the space-time continuum. Basically, what happened was, you know, I was, I basically had my own thought experiments and things that I was thinking out and things that I was writing down and doing, et cetera, et cetera, um, decades ago. And then finally, you know, a, a nice little thing called Google comes along and I, I do some research and, search and uh, searching on it at some point and discover, oh, yeah, Einstein had some similar ideas and concepts. Yeah. So there we go. All right. So on to the, uh, the next clip, which is artificial intelligence. And then, Jen, we will finally get to Ireland. <laughs> Um, but it, it does cause you to question, okay, if we were able to actually upload our consciousness into a computer, would it really be us? Would it, would it be us? Or would it be a program that is taking us, that's taking all the data from us and is trying to calculate the things that we would say, the decisions that we, were, we would make, et cetera, et cetera, based on our past behavior. You know, it, would it really be able to figure out an emotion or would it just take the past behaviors and say, well, because of things that he or she has done in the past, in this type of situation, he or she would say and do this and act in this type of emotional way, which really isn't consciousness, it's just a very, very sophisticated uh, simulation of you. And so these type of movies, you know, make you ask those sorts of, of questions. You know, if, you, if we were able to achieve this, and people are actually trying to do this, if we were able to achieve this, would it really be sentience consciousness? Would it really be ourselves? Or would it just be a very, very good simulation? For instance... So, um, yeah, that's, that's Deepak Chopra. Not really. It's digital Deepak. So this was developed by uh, the AI Foundation. Um, the people that have done this, Deepak Chopra, Richard Branson, um, they claim to have, quote, unquote, uploaded their consciousness into this program or into, you know, this computer. And it's able to interact with a person just like they would. 
Except not really. Um, it's not really uploading their consciousness into a computer. They're, they're doing a lot of different things to make it look and act and feel like them. But really, they're, they're training the AI. Yeah, and on that particular class, we, we, we talked about a lot of different programs that are out there right now doing this sort of thing. So that's one, the digital Deepak thing. Um, there was another for uh, people to uh, upload enough of their life. And, you know, they they put the, the person through like this battery of questions, question, 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 question. Um, they do like all these scans of the physical body. They, you know, get into their social media. They say, bring in all these photos, bring in all this documentation, all this stuff to create this AI personage of you. So that if you were to pass away, that your children or relatives or whomever could interact with you. But it's not really you. It's like, it's just a really, really good simulation of you. The very, the clip at the very, very beginning of Transcendence, this was like a download of his brain into the computer. And that's what they're trying to get to is that downloading of everything that's in the brain into a computer so that you can kind of continue to live on. Um, which again, I would question is that, is that still really your consciousness or is it just downloading all the data into your brain so that the computer can, again, make a really, really good simulation of you, you know, with all of the, you know, archival backup data of you know, that includes all your memories and knows everything that ever happened within your life. And if it, even if it did, I don't know how realistic that would be. So what I mean is take memories, okay? There are things that I could forget about for years, sometimes decades, and all of a sudden there's a piece of music, a smell, um, just a looking at an object that I haven't seen in 20 years. All of a sudden, boom, a memory comes back. You know, the, it, it stores it all the way back in there somewhere in the deep recesses of your mind that, you know, if you would have asked me yesterday about it, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, you know, but all of a sudden, because there's a little trigger, boom, it fires up. Would a computer know to do that if you're uploaded into one? I don't know. I don't know. Um, and uh, gates of conflict. So let's play devil advocate for a minute. Let's say they found a way to upload the human consciousness or the soul. Could they keep it stable for more than a minute? I think it's not possible yet. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's the actual consciousness or the soul being you know, uploaded. I, I don't think that's possible yet. I think they can just make a really, really good simulation of you. But I don't think it's really the consciousness. <laughs> Victoria, uh, refill your glasses. It's a three-hour show. I still got a little left here. Quite a, quite a refill yet. Um Eva, the series upload is fun to watch. I watched a few episodes of that. That was kind of interesting. Yep. Um, and Eva, missing the grand ingredient. Will, yeah, uh, that, that's a good point. Yep. Um, 
And Betty, do you think an AI would bring out your dark shadow side to keep you hidden from the world? You know, that's an interesting question because I think there are, we each have thoughts that we never actually vocalize to, to anyone. You know, they're always kind of in the deep recesses of our mind and we think them and we admit them to ourselves. Would a computer know that? You know, if you uploaded your consciousness or you at least uploaded enough data, would it know that? And if it did, now here's the here's the more terrible question. If it did know that, would it actually act out on it where you, even though you have like some dark thought over here, you're like, yeah, but I'm disciplined enough to not go there. Would the computer actually act out that thing you never would have done, even though it was in your head? Hmm. Ooh, scary thought. All right. Tom's drinking a Manhattan. All right. <laughs> maybe I re, maybe I will refill the glass here. All right. Hop, happy holidays, everyone, as we get into, um, oh, we're an hour and 30 into this. All right. Okay. So here we go with Ireland. This next one kind of like takes the cake in that category. And that was Blarney Castle. Um, Blarney, I, I was really pleasantly surprised. I mean, you, you hear about, you know, kissing the Blarney stone, um, you know, which, which I did, you know, there's, there's me kissing the Blarney stone, but this, it, it is more than just the castle and exploring the castle is very, very cool, but the grounds have so much going on that I really had no idea. It's like, I, I knew there was a stone circle near there uh, when, when when we have covered this you know prior to the uh to the tour when we were kind of doing like ancient mysteries of ireland and what's going to be there when we go and etc i mentioned okay you know stone circle near the near blarney and and there it is the what they call the seven sisters but there's so much more going on with the grounds it is just absolutely beautiful um really was not expecting uh what all was there and we did not have enough time to cover it all we were there for a couple of hours and we just kind of like really scratched the surface um i saw photos coming from other people within the group that's like where in the world did you find that so if if um yeah jen is saying we need ireland trip part two i don't know if if ann is still down there um she had she took photos of these um it was these gypsy caravan carriages which was like where in the heck were those so let me play the uh, clip here and I have a couple more photos from Blarney. Um, we really needed more time there for sure. Okay, story goes that this is an ancient Druid circle, stone circle, and two of the king's sons had fallen in battle. So he ordered a uh, contingent of his men to come out here. There were nine standing stones and he ordered them to knock them over. So now there's only seven stones. They call them the Seven Sisters now. Okay, just to give you guys a little perspective here. Look how big that is, okay? This, this is me, full size. These things are huge. I haven't even gotten to the castle yet. And just, you got stuff like this. The, the gardens here and the grounds, absolutely amazing. You could really do a whole day here. Um, we don't even have a couple hours. 
but we're gonna try to do our best here and see what is around. I haven't got to the castle yet. Yeah, so that's just the grounds. You didn't see any of the castle in that clip at all. Um, and if you've watched the travel blogs, you know what I mean. There's a lot to the grounds that I didn't even include in that little bit. And um, yeah, Sarah saying the uh, landscape is amazing is so, um, okay, and it's still down there. Where did you find those gypsy carriages? Because uh, whenever we go back, I mean, there's another island trip is going to happen. Um, Blarney is going to happen again. I need to find those. Those things were cool. It was like, it's like, did they use these in Peaky Blinders? <laughs> those were really cool. Um, and and Anne says in her blog, she called Blarney the crown jewel. It really was. I, I really, really enjoyed Blarney and, and really needed more time there. Um, so this is at the top of the castle. Um, you know, along the way, as you're going up to uh, Kiss the Stone, uh, there are some different rooms that you can uh, you can kind of view and investigate and kind of check out a little bit. But um, on, on the way down, you you get you know a bit more of that. So you know it's not just up to the top of the castle, kiss the stone, and you're done. There are other places to kind of explore. And, and this was kind of a good photo of me uh, that that Jen took. So I appreciate that um, within Blarney Castle. Yeah, I love Blarney. And so, and there's Jen. Ah, Blarney. Uh, yeah, one of my favorite places. I had a lot. I mean, Ireland is amazing. Uh, John Stone Circle is another one. And just, we talked about resonance and vibration earlier. Stand in the middle of John Circle and just talk. And you can feel it and hear it. It's amazing. Um, so, you know, we definitely need to to go back. Uh, Eva says, Mike, you answer so many questions, but you always leave me with more. Uh, that's the thing about all of this is, you know, for all the things that, you know, we finally oh, figure out or we think we figure out, you know, it opens up doors to like 20 other different things. So <laughs> there's, we're, we're never going to know it all. There's always different questions that we are just like, what in the world? There's a lot out there, which is what makes the universe so fascinating. Uh, Sharon says Elon is kind of terrified of AI in some regards. Yeah, I've seen some of the different inter interviews with him. He, he kind of is, even though he plays in that arena. So go figure that. Um, so Karen also kissed the Blarney Stone. Yeah, what's wild about the Blarney Stone is you lay back on that and it's like you feel like you're about to fall <laughs> right off of the uh, the castle. And they, they have a hold of you really, really well and you're holding on to the uh to the pipes and everything that they have there but just the way you lean backwards you feel like you're about to fall right off the castle it's it's kind of crazy um and victoria saying they also have the seven sisters in texas uh what else do you guys have here? um that was just this past year judy this um that was in july well very end of june and into july that was our Ancient Mysteries of Ireland tour. So we're doing more tours now. So there was the Ireland one there in July. We have the uh, Stargates of Ancient Egypt that's coming up here in February. Again, Mohammed has that registration open until I, I believe it's January 8th. But it's like you, you can do it as a Christmas present, but you better jump on it. Because like Jen and I, we booked our plane tickets here the other day. And it's like, we were able to find seats, but still it's like, 
you're getting down to the uh, you're getting down to the wire here. Um, so if you want to come to Egypt, do it now. Do it as a Christmas present. And then September 1st through the 8th, uh, we have a an Alaska cruise coming up, uh, Sail with Spirit. And then I also have 2024, another uh, Alaska tour coming up. So the, no details on that one yet. So, all right. Um, let's see. I think that's... Uh, okay, here we go. Betty. So do you feel as humans we are living only a small part of man's abilities? Absolutely. Well, they already tell us that, you know, at maximum, we're only using 10% of our brains. That's max. Most people are not. So imagine if you used more. And actually, the movie Lucy uh, with Scarlett Johansson and Morgan Freeman dives into that, uh, which is an interesting movie. I, I know a lot of critics didn't like it, but I liked it. I thought I thought it was fun. And then um, there's Jen with the salewithspirit.com link. Thank you very much. So, all right. So let's get on to, and she's got the link for the uh, Stargates one as well. So there's Sail with Spirit. There's Stargates. Awesome. Thank you, Jen. See, this is why I love this woman. <laughs> all right. So let's get to the next one, which is Tulpas. So basically, just a, a quick definition here uh, as we are talking about this concept. A tulpa is a type of supernatural entity that takes on the form of a character from legend and folklore and acts out that persona. It literally means manifestation. This concept originated in Tibet within early Buddhist texts about the ability to create mind-made body and is the basis of the thought form. Some beliefs include human beings creating their own tulpas purely from thought manipulating invisible energy into visible forms. Uh, that's basically a paragraph out of my book, A Walk in the Shadows, A Complete Guide to Shadow People, because I get asked many, many times, are shadow people tulpas, or can they be tulpas? So there's something I do want to read here that is from uh, her work, which is really, really interesting. So this is Alexandra David Niel's uh, work, from uh, Magicians and Mystics, Chapter 3. He told me to write a list of new questions on the points which still appeared to me obscure. To these he gave written answers. The present quotation is taken from the document with which the Dalai Lama favored me. So this is a quote from, uh, from 1912 Dalai Lama concerning Tulpas. It says... Amaravata, a being who has attained the high degree of spiritual perfection immediately below that of a Buddha, is the basis of countless magic forms. By the power generated in a state of perfect concentration, or maybe that would also be called meditation, just a little sidebar there by Mike, in a state of perfect concentration of mind, he may, at one and the same time, show a phantom, tulpa-written, Spropa of himself in thousands, millions of worlds. He may create not only human forms, but any forms he chooses, even those of inanimated objects, such as hills, enclosures, houses, forests, roads, bridges, etc. Okay, that was really wordy, but basically, you had the uh, the Dalai Lama uh, describing 
in, in their context what a what a tulpa is. Now, the story I love telling about that, and it's within the Mothman prophecies. It has nothing to do with the Mothman, which is right back there on my desk. Mothman prophecies. Um, is with Walter B. Gibson, who under the pseudonym uh, Maxwell Grant wrote The Shadow Story. So it's, of course, in A Walk in the Shadows. Uh, the Shadow Knows. And basically what happened there was, uh, if anybody's familiar with the house on Gay Street, Greenwich Village in New York. So this is supposed to be an extremely haunted house. You know, old school paranormal investigators or consults are investigated there and you know things like that. And um, Basically, while a lot of people believe that it's supposed to be like some revolutionary war spy, what John Keel proposed and also Walter Gibson was that, no, 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 this is not some spirit from the revolutionary war. This is actually a manifestation of Walter Gibson's thoughts that he put so much passion into his writing, like literally... Um, he had multiple typewriters set up around the house because they didn't have computers back then, word processors. He had multiple typewriters set up around the house because he was working on so many different projects. Um, he was writing multiple novels per month. It was like insane. You know, they, they talked about his fingers bleeding from typing so much. He put so much passion into this character that it actually manifested itself into the house and that's what people see there and that would be a tulpa according to uh the buddhist tradition so it's really really interesting really fascinating and so uh that was our tulpa and sentient thought forms class so uh karen says and this is back on the the tours i wish i would have known about you sooner because i would have gone uh with you but now i have to wait so just to let you know um with the Egypt tour. That's not our last tour. <laughs> um, as long as everything goes well with this one coming up here in February, which is fine. Um, Mohammed and I were talking about doing a series. So uh, we, ha we haven't set a second one yet, but possibly 2024. Uh, and what I would propose to him, because we're doing Stargates first, I want to do an Atlantis one. So we're going to see a clip from that here very soon. The Atlantis-Egypt connection, uh, you know, with, with Ed Fu and actually Esna. Um, that I don't think the clip includes Esna. We're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Uh, Jill says, Tulpas remind me of Stephen King book, The Dark. I have not read that, Dark Half. So, all right. And uh, we got Miawi Holidays Toby. All right. Yeah. Uh, Toby just popped out of his bachelor's pad and said Miawi Holidays. All right, Toby. Good to see you, Toby. Um, and Betty. Um, so Connected Universe classes are on the secret Facebook group, which you are a part of. But while I say that, for the new year, it's going to be another place. I will email you. So don't worry about it. All right. So let's go to the uh, the next one. Oh, and it is the next clip. All right. Whew. Here we go. Egypt, Atlantis. I, I could talk about this one all night. Because Ed Fu contains the most complete story currently in existence 
of Zeptepi. Again, the first time. So according to Graham Hancock, he wrote that there is a story written here by the priest talks about Atlantis. When I explained this to you three years ago, it was because it talks about the story of immigration and showed the power of the natives who came uh, through the ocean. So remember the lecture that Muhammad gave you guys last night? And he was talking to you about the Atlantis story, where we get it from. We were all discussing this before, right? We think that people think that Atlantis is a Greek story. Mm -hmm. Richard knows this. I can see it in his eyes. But here's the thing, is that the Plato, Plato tells us the story that he writes in, you know, we hear about Critias and Tiamias, but his uncle Critias told it to him. His uncle Critias got the story from his great-great-great-grandfather, Solon. Solon traveled over to Egypt, what it was called Sais. Mm -hmm. And when he came here, he talked to a priest called Sanchi. Said Sanchi said, come here, I got a story to tell you. Mm -hmm. It's a great story. And we believe the story that Muhammad's showing you is the same one he saw in the temple of Nefru. So, Edfu, the immigration uh, depictions that Muhammad was talking about uh, has a lot of similarities to the Atlantis story. When we look at these depictions at Edfu, we see we see these boats, okay? And basically what is, is going on here is the story of a cataclysm and their survival of that. Uh, first, it's important to note that these texts at Edfu, and by the way, this is what Edfu looks like from, from the outside, but uh, what's important to note about the Edfu text is that they did not originate on the walls of this temple. What these are are copies of what is considered the most important parts of this story from a much larger archive of documents that actually existed at that time. So these texts here describe an era in which the gods of Egypt, or otherwise known as the Netters, lived on a sacred island known as the homeland of the primeval ones. And at some point, a cataclysm of flood and fire destroyed the island and most of its inhabitants. Some survived and set sail on their ships to wander the world and recreate their civilization. So it's almost Atlantis plus Noah. Okay, so yeah, there's a little music there. <laughs> And that's because I actually grabbed that clip from the video I posted to the YouTube channel on the Egypt-Atlantis connection, which is a condensed version of this class. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely love that story and I love exploring that. And those that know me know that I love like the, the, the swirl patterns that are seen all over the world that are very representative of not only of Atlantis, but also of portals. You know, it, it all ties in together. Um, so, yeah, what's interesting there with um, Saiyiz, Edfu, Esna, um, it was only a small clip, but you see the same iconography at Edfu as you do Esna. We see, like, the levitation of the temple, and... Uh, the Temple of Saïs, 
which is where the Atlanta story came from, um, you know, had the same, uh, you know, one of the same gods representing that temple as the temple of Edza, Edzna, Edzna, sorry. So you see all of these different connections. And so that's my talk with uh, Mohammed here on the upcoming Egypt tour. When we talk about the next one. That's the one I want to talk to him about is, is the Atlantis connection. So um, Tom was saying hard to copy links, get it off Mike's page. So uh, down in the description on the YouTube channel, I have the link to the Stargates of Ancient Egypt tour. Yes, you can get it off of my website, MikeRickSecker.com. Um, and then the other one, it's real easy sale with Spirit. Uh, the Stargates of Ancient Egypt tour is a We Travel link. But uh, like I said, so it should, let me make sure, should have it down there in the description. Uh, yeah, discover more about our Stargates of Ancient Egypt tour at, oh, I put the link to my my website, MikeRickSecker.com slash Stargates of Ancient Egypt. Okay, you got it. It'll be good. So, um, yeah, yeah. What's what's really really fascinating about that? You know, people think of the the classic um, Plato story. Yeah, you know, the destruction of this civilization, but we see remnants of that around the world. I think a lot of people over years have taken it out of context. You know, our mainstream traditional archaeology is likes to say, well, that's just a myth. Well, you know, you see a lot of these quote-unquote myths play out in other cultures around the world when we talk about these cataclysms, when we talk about the floods. Um, you know, every, it seems like almost every civilization from our ancient past has a flood story. So, um, you know, like these guys that are hammering Graham Hancock right now for his series on Netflix um, you know, I mean, he points out, hey, you know, all of these different civilizations had the same story. You know, it's it it all it all ties in together. So, all right, getting down to hey, we're getting on two hours here. So let me get these last couple ones in here. So, toward the end of the year here, of course, we had the uh, the episode with the unexplained on triangle areas of the world. So uh, here we go, the vile vortices. You have an individual that we talked about a few months back, Ivan T. Sanderson, who wrote about the vile vortices. Now this was another very intelligent individual. He was a British biologist, uh, later became a US citizen, which is very cool. He wrote several books on animals, nature, and the like, and he had a profound interest in the paranormal and supernatural. He was also an early follower of Charles Fort. And it's from Charles Fort where we get the term Fortian. He was also the organizer for the Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained. So this was um, his paranormal group. <laughs> you know, but before we had paranormal teams, you know, he had, uh, you know, the cyclical research uh, organization. I forget the full term, but they've been around since late 1800s cyclical research society uh and then of course you have ivan t sanderson investigation for the unexplained so you had these sort of organizations rather than you know your paranormal teams going out and doing ghost hunts you had some you know kind of quote-unquote ghost hunters uh carrie price hans holzer eventually the warrens 
you know, that, that came out. And now, you know, we have them all over the place. Sanderson's most famous work was an article published in 1972 titled Grave, uh, 12 Devil's Graveyards Around the World. This is where we talk about the vile vortices. So within this, he describes that uh, 10 of these, basically, are within the Tropic of Cancer, uh, or five are within the Tropic of Cancer, I'm sorry, five are within the Tropic of Capricorn, which is a total of 10, the other two, North Pole, South Pole. Together, if you draw lines through the Earth on these, it will make a perfect icosagon, or 20-sided polygon, which... We're not going to get into sacred geometry, but that is fascinating. I know I keep saying I'm going to do an episode of sacred geometry, and we will one of these days. Um, I, I will say this. <laughs> when, it, when it came to math, and I was actually really good at math, um, really good, but geometry was a whole other ball of wax. It was like a whole different language. It really what threw me off was the the theorems. We had to write all of all out all the theorems. And it was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, but in any case, yeah, sacred geometry is very, very, very interesting. And the fact that the vile vortices line up with that is really interesting as well. But all of that said, when it comes to Ivan T. Sanderson and his vile vortices. There are many other hot spot areas around the world, many other triangle areas, <clears throat> excuse me, that don't quite line up with this vile vortices. So, um, so it's a little bit more than that. But he set the groundwork for that. He put us on the right path. And I think there is something to be said that you have all these all of these different spots that do line up, like the Icosagon. Um, so that is significant, but there's still more to it. Which is which is fascinating. Um, okay, some of your comments here. Uh, yes, Sharon, I agree with you. Many modern historians have a narrative they're trying to or are going to stick with, no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they have. Well, and some of them are, and I get it. You know, it's like, well, you know, I've been teaching or preaching the same thing for forty years, so why am I suddenly going to go back on it? You know, or maybe they have some books to sell or something like that. But when it comes to the whole, you know, I have these books to sell, write another book, right? You know, just write another book that's like, there's new information. You know, and I mentioned Graham Hancock earlier. You know, you look at his Magicians of the Gods in 20 years previous, his Fingerprints of the Gods. With Fingerprints, he was really on the earth crust displacement, which he backed off from over 20 years. And with magicians, he was more on comet impact theory and all that. Well, in in interviews, he was asked, okay, you know, you've, you've kind of, you know, have a different theory here. And he's like, well, you know, I, I changed my mind. You know, I found out over those 20 years period of time, new information. And so... Um, what I say at the beginning of, of my books, and I, and I put this at the beginning of A Walk in the Shadows, if I could line that up right, there we go, um, is I reserve the right to change my mind. As I come across new information, 
that may put some of these theories to bed. You know, there, there may be other things that I come across that are like, I was wrong with that one. We had to put that one off to the side and it's, it's over here. And I've done that in the past where there have been things like that. I thought before, you know, 15, 20 years ago that are like, yeah, no, I, I believe something different now. And so you, you have to, you have to be open-minded like that. And when it comes to science, you know, if we're looking at, I mean, I, I know we, some people say, you know, when you talk about the supernatural and all that, it's not very scientific, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But as a scientist, when you look at some of this different information, like, like Sharon's saying, they have a certain narrative they're trying to stick with. That's not scientific. To sit there and say that, well, you know, we're going to stay on this because this is what we've talked about for the last umpteen years. That's not scientific. If you have this proof over here that is showing something else, you have to back off of the other stance. I don't care how long you've been saying it. You know, how long did they say that the earth was flat? I know there's flat earthers out there, but they're just dead wrong. Um, you know, like I've, I've said this before, get a reality show together where you have the flat earthers find the edge of the earth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, go, go for it, guys. Go find the edge of the earth on your reality show. Show everybody where the edge of the earth is. Um, the, earth, the earth is wrong. But for how many years do we believe that it was flat? Uh, you have to be willing to change your, your perspective. And yeah, there are too many people that are just, you know, too, too rigid in, in their dogma. Um, you need to be open-minded when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> there's victoria hallowed earth been saying it there you go <laughs> i knew you were gonna go there at some point there are big cavernous areas of of the planet absolutely which going back to some of the things that we were talking about earlier i think it was judy that was asking about it um when we talked about the earth's magnetism and coming up through different areas of the earth that plays into it. When you have a hollow spot, when you have a void in there somewhere, that does play into that as well. So, um, yeah. And here's Betty. Uh, Mike, I saw you change over time by your interviews with all your guests. They showed you new ideas. A absolutely. Um, yeah, you get to talking to a lot of different people in this field, and they, they make you think like, oh, I never thought of that. Or, oh, that actually, I may have had an idea over here. And your input on it made me maybe not change it wholly, but at least put a new perspective on it that, oh, I have some new ideas with this over here. So, yeah. And here, Sarah, I will do theorem work. Oh, my gosh. I would write out all those all those theorems in geometry class, I guess. That was, my, that was freshman year? Yeah, that was freshman year. Jeez. All right, so I think we have a couple others here. Almost done. Oh, one more. One more. And this was just two weeks ago. Matrix of consciousness. So it's the idea that your consciousness is essentially being sent from somewhere else. It's being broadcast from somewhere else. And the body is picking that up as a receiver and... You can look at it as like an, an avatar type of a thing where this is the avatar. This is what we are 
functioning within, but the actual consciousness itself is being broadcast from somewhere else. Not saying that is exactly the way it is, but it's an idea, and we will go down that rabbit hole. Do have some other uh, quotes here. I'm going to throw out there from uh, Greg Braden, and we have talked about this before too. So we will get into uh, like the idea of a simulation, which is why this is matrix of consciousness. Um, and we've talked about some of this stuff before here too in, in other classes. So in uh, season two of Missing Links, uh, he he dove down into this subject of he called it the the divine matrix. Um, we can call it whatever we want, but the idea that we're in a simulation, I use some of these quotes for my book, a walk in the shadows. So in his quotes, uh, first, just kind of define defining a simulation. This is from the episode evidence of our simulated reality. He says, a simulation is an experience that allows us to immerse ourselves in an unfamiliar environment first and second, it allows us to master the parameters of that environment in a relatively safe way while minimizing the risk of injury to ourselves or to one another. So first of all, I will say this. If we are in some sort of simulation, I don't necessarily believe that it's a computer as in the technology that we have at our disposal right now. Um, when we get into our science fiction and the idea of simulations there we've generally done that from the idea of a computer because that is you know the the epitome of our technology today let's start with the the physicality of the body and we're going to get into the connection between the brain and the heart so we have talked a little bit about brain heart connection before that there are 40,000 sensory neurites in the heart. And this is that term, the little brain in the heart. Uh, this is from the Cleveland Clinic uh, Journal of Medicine, March 2007, a citation from that um, Dr. Uh, J. Andrew Armour. He's a pioneer in this field. Taken extensive research and introduced the concept of the intrinsic cardiac network as a functional heart brain. His work demonstrated a complex intrinsic nervous system in the heart that is deemed sufficiently sophisticated to qualify as a quote unquote little brain in its own right. The complexity of the neurocircuitry in the heart allows independent action separate from the cranial brain. So, okay, that's a, that's a lot of big words. But essentially what that means is, you know, the whole concept, or if I could speak, the whole concept of thinking with your heart, right? Um, you know, you get all these different, you know, ideas in your, you know, okay, let's just take a situation. You get all these different ideas in your, in your brain about how to, um, do I want to make this choice? Do I want to that, make that choice? You know, if I go down this path, what's it going to, mean if I go down that path what's going to happen you you start to overanalyze and then somebody tells you slow down a second what does your heart tell you that's right what does your heart tell you and I see some of the comments how the hell is bike changing jackets so quickly well yeah if you saw the last transition it was actually almost perfect it was just I think the shirt changed I think it was might have been the same jacket <laughs> um 
And Sharon Lane says, I love Greg Brady. Yeah, I so do I. So do I. Uh, his work is fantastic, and he's like the nicest guy ever. Um, yeah, he, he he's a great dude. Um, so, yeah, I'm losing track of which is the live mic. I think that's Alina. Uh, yeah. Okay, so... Um, yeah so matrix of, of consciousness yeah that was a uh, um we got into a lot of different interesting topics with that one it hasn't gotten a lot of love there uh on the on the podcast or, or anything else but um explores a lot of those those different concepts of um where our consciousness resides and the idea that um, it could be transmitting from somewhere else to here that our that our body is just the receptor for the consciousness. And then there's just the whole relationship between the heart or the, the brain and the heart uh, is really fascinating. The, the neurites within the heart. Uh, yeah, that was that was one that I did not I, I wasn't aware of until. A few years ago and so we were talking about that just a little a little bit ago about you know keeping yourself open-minded to other concepts and so the idea that there are neurons within your heart that um it, it makes sense because we've talked about that for millennia you know i mean a lot of the ancients a lot of different ancient cultures believed that you know you know they, they didn't know about the brain before they all thought it was the heart you know, they, they thought that this is what you're thinking with was the heart, not up here. There's a relationship between the two is what it is. Um, so Betty here has, uh, um, when you lose someone you deeply love, your heart breaks, your mind says, get over it. Do you feel the heart thinks over loss? Um, you know, you never truly get over it. Um, you know, I miss people. I think that's what it is, is, is I miss people that I've lost, you know, um, and I think about a lot, those that have, that have preceded me, uh, like my grandparents, you know, they, they were wonderful people, um, very kind, very caring, very giving, um, very interesting, very intelligent. And I miss talking with them. I miss having those conversations. I miss being in their company. And it's one of those where it's like the physical body couldn't keep up anymore. And you know they were in pain. Um, and you, you don't want them in pain anymore. You know? So... So in that sense, it's like, uh, this is tough. Damn, Betty. <laughs> um, in that sense, it's like, I'm happy they're no longer, they're no longer in pain. But I'm, I, I miss those conversations. I miss that time that I had to spend with them. And there was a good 20 years there. Oh, God, it pains me so much where you know, 15 to 20 years where I didn't have a lot of time to spend with them because of, you know, then I was an adult and I had kids that I was raising and things like that. And it's like, I wish I would have had more of that time 
as an adult to have some of those conversations that it that it couldn't have as a kid because I was too young. And that when we did get together as an adult, it's like we started to have those conversations and it, it was limited. So, um, so the heart is always going to feel that kind of loss. The brain can rationalize it. Like I was saying, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they no longer have, you know, those physical pains or maladies or maladies or whatever. Um, like my grandmother suffered dementia the last couple of years. And it's like, I, I don't wish that upon anyone. Um, but yeah. All right. Um, there's Jen with a super sticker. It's a big heart. I know this thing doesn't show the heart, but Jen has a, uh, a big heart on the super sticker. And then there's Tom McNicholas with a, uh, with another, with another super chat, happy holidays with a bunch of icons. So we got a snowman, Christmas tree, and and others. So thank you very much, Tom, and of course Jen. So all right. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know that Mike talked to them. Their spirit is listening, is still listening, loving. Yeah, I absolutely know that. Yeah, I I, I do. Um, there have been some visits and things like that. So yeah, I absolutely know that. And um, yeah, it's um. Yeah, this is the time of year that I miss them because we had a lot of different traditions uh, around this time. And, um, you know, and I still enjoy this this time of year. You know, I have my parents and um, my sister and my kids and all that stuff. Jen, Jen now, <laughs> to, uh, to to spend those different traditions and things with. But, um, but, but uh, I just got, okay, so... This is unsponsored. I have to say that because I'm, I'm broadcasting on YouTube right now. It's unsponsored. iMemories.com. Um, I sent them some videotapes uh, about a month ago. Just got the videos today. One of the videos was my high school graduation. The other was Christmas 1997, which was also on the 24th, my son Chase's birthday. And so... Um, one of the treats on that videotape, which I did not remember was there, was um, some celebration at my grandfather's house on my mother's side and then my grandparents' house on my my dad's side. And so getting some of that was, that was amazing. So I, I was really happy about that. You know, happy tears sort of thing. So, um, and, and yeah, hear their voice and feel their hugs. And that was, that's what was great about that video. Um, I, and in the graduation video has that because my mother, my, my mother, my grandmother's holding the video camera. So her voice is constant, even though you don't see her. Um, but on the, um, Christmas video that I was just talking about, you actually get to see her there. And then of course my grandfather's there. Um, and then other, other relatives. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So uh, I was really happy to get that today. So, all right. So that's going to do it. <laughs> we went over two hours with the two hours and 14 minutes is what it says right now. Oh, wow. 
I didn't realize we were going to this long. I figured this was going to be a longer one with all the clips I pulled out. I didn't realize we were going to we were going to go this long. But this was Victoria. Remember our last Edge of the Rabbit Hole episode, which which went three hours. We're not going three hours tonight, but um, yeah, I want to wish all of you a very very happy holiday season. Whatever you celebrate, I celebrate Christmas. So if you also do, uh, Merry Christmas. Um, you know, for others, happy whatever you're celebrating, Yule, um, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever it is, enjoy, have fun, happy new year, and we will see you next year for Connected Universe Portal members. Should be that first Wednesday of January, I would expect. So I'd have to take a look at the, um, calendar but um enjoy your holidays peace and much love till next time if time really exists <laughs>